With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hey guys, I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And I'm Juan Camilo Saez, and we're here for Last Podcast Network. Our show, Escuela Sangre, is a weekly Spanish podcast where each week we talk about Hispanic true crime, serial killers, the supernatural folklore, and Walter Mercado. Icon. The cool thing about this show is that it's not just for native speakers, but also for anyone who wants to learn or brush up on their Spanish. Yeah! If you go to lastpodcastnetwork.com and click on ES Scripts, you'll find the scripts to our shows. The transcript is not a direct translation to the show since we improvise a fair amount here and there, but the narrative is as close as it gets, I promise. Sí, sí. Hemos hablado sobre Pedro López, sobrevivientes en los Andes Richie Valens Sacrificios Humanos de sí. los Aztecas Santería Santería Selena y Yolanda Historias Hispanas de México Colombia Perú España Brasil Puerto Rico Puerto Rico So if you want to hear about La Llorona Juana Barraza Pop star Gloria Trevi and her time in a sex cult Ooh. Escuela Sangre is the show for you You can find all the episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, or go to lastpodcastnetwork.com under shows. Los shows. So búscalo. Búscalo. Gracias, amigos. Bye. Escuela Sangre. No. No. Everybody, it's your fun woodland Ewok wizard, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your wheezing old personification of everything evil. So be it, my young apprentice. <laughs> I'm the bad guy. <laughs> bruiser. I, I guess bruiser. And it's I, yeah, I'm just Stormtrooper. And there's just like a bunch of us down here. I think we're all going to get murdered, are we? <laughs> Roger, Roger, Roger that, Echo 4. Uh, correction. Uh, some of us are going to get murdered. Some of us are going to get bopped on the head lightly. Do you think they, maybe we could convince them to get our helmets taken off so we can get a, we can get a name credit in here? No. Uh, our, our eight Ewoks have already died on set. <laughs> Uh, this is our episode on Return of the Jedi. That's right, <laughs> folks. <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Of course, uh, the the classic song entitled "Return of the Jedi" um, mm. by for <laughs> from John Williams for the Star Wars soundtrack. <laughs> you know, this movie. We were just talking about it before we started, and we should have just stayed for the thing. This was definitely my favorite movie as a kid. Surprise, surprise, right? And I was telling Jake, 
Because Jake said it, it was always Empire for you. You always liked the no, dark no, no, one. no, no. I always okay. So how do I explain? Uh, there was as a kid watching all three in a row for the first time mm-hmm. in a pre-internet era on VHS, mm-hmm. and like having my mind blown because you're a kid. So the revelation that like Darth Vader is Luke's father is mind blowing. A fuck, and it ends on a bad ending. This is like that we talked about in the Empire I'm episode. Shocked that it's you, the first bad ending. I feel like I had to have known the. It, it had become such a ta- like known. And people tagline. still cared. That was like st- it's still. God, for me personally, I think I had already heard Luke. I am your father. By this point, before I even watched the movies, uh, maybe I came to them a little later or something. Either way, go on. I'm sorry. I, I feel I like that was like when I was a child, a child, you know, like actual like under ten. Tiny Jake, yeah. I was never tiny. I was. <laughs> I've just elongated, but I was. I've just been a dense sphere. Short but wide is the room, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, he's coming. Mother, I would like some Cheerios. I went and talked to a witch doctor yesterday. Prayed for a growth spurt. I prayed for it. My bones float freely within the plasma. I'm eight years old. What a weird image. Anyway, um, so I feel like there was still a protected thing. You didn't just blurt it out. You were kind of an asshole if you knew someone didn't hadn't watched Star Wars and like you. It was still an important twist. And then reeling from that, Return of the Jedi is so insanely huge and, and you know, the the drama of it, there's, like, huge moments that stand out that uh, as a movie from, like, actually watching minute to minute, doesn't it doesn't flow as freely. It, it is more awkwardly paced. Weird energy happening because the Ewoks are tonally, like, uh, bizarre and kind of kiddie-like. And then Jabba's palace is like real squishy and weird, and there's a guy named Bib with two dicks on his head. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Return of the Jedi from the moment it starts just smack. If you're a little kid, it just smacks you <laughs> in the face with crazy imagery, like a giant horrifying monster. It gives you that like large Marge moment, <laughs> you know, with the giant monster in the pit. Uh, what's his uh, the the Sarnak or whatever it is? No, the Sarlacc's the uh, desert vagina. The desert vagina, but but and that was also terrifying. But the giant, I have it in here somewhere. We'll, we'll get to it definitely. I've but. been reading that. Why am I drawing a blank now? It's because my adrenaline spiked and yeah. I forgot it. What? The Rancor. The fuck, Rancor. Fuck so me up even the that, ass. How did that, I not know Rancor? That Rancor uh, fight definitely for me as a kid was actually legit scary as fuck. And mm-hmm. like I definitely, the first time I watched it, I had to like kind of turn away. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it, it just, it felt like, the, oh, this, unlike the other two, like immediately get going and then also Ewoks. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it just felt like it was just so much more there for me as a little kid. But I again, I digress, Jake. What were yeah. you saying? That so the the death of Yoda, um yeah. the revelation about uh Leia, the final con- the final confrontation the revelation with Darth- that she's a, a hot sex object, is that the revelation? No, <laughs> with the that's... fucking gold bikini that everyone jerks off about. I don't understand that. I never was like, "Oh, hubba hubba." As an adult, <laughs> as an adult human being, like I was too young to fetishize it. Uh, yeah, like, I was too young to fetishize it for uh, sure. It's and a, then, yeah, in but, hindsight, I was like, oh, I guess that was like as an adult. Sexy. It's just like it's half. Uh, oh my god, uh, Carrie Fisher, like was an incredibly beautiful woman and lived an incredibly interesting life. And it's like weird that this one person, like behind the scenes and in front of the camera, had such a wide ranging effect on our culture. Uh huh. And then the second half of me is like. 
now that I know her full story, I know she was on a million diet pills and doing yeah. a bunch of cocaine. Yeah. And this wasn't like a great time for her, but it was, it's still just, yeah, it's 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 not supposed to be sexy. It's supposed to be like demeaning. It's well, supposed to yeah. be gross and also, weird. Also, I will say that it was hard to be like all turned on by her because the whole time she's right next to this like giant, disgusting slug monster <laughs> that's like eating fucking worms or whatever it is. What does he eat? Some he eats like these a gross leech. creatures and yeah. everything's weird. And then you have that like quote unquote sexy dancing woman or whatever oh, alien yeah. woman. But that well, weird. there's the there's the skinny one who gets fed to the rancor and then yes. there's that like uh, curvier one with like eight boobs either way it's not interesting to me sexually and uh, if you're I, watching the um and if you're watching the special editions you got jedi rocks going in in the middle of that yes yes completely <laughs> we're not talking about the special editions okay? oh you're a nepty uh nepty lock or whatever that one is <laughs> i like that a lot <laughs> I, as a piece of music, I prefer Jedi Rocks. Uh, Lefty Knock, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong, just drones on if you actually listen to it as a song. Right, right. Also, it's real weird in Jedi Rocks when the guy's like belting out like, wow, and yes. you look up his weird digital mouth. But that's what I loved about- um, Oh, well, also, also this, important, Lefty because we're not going to talk about Lefty Knock and Jedi Rocks at any other point in the show. No, we have um, to move past it. We it, we'll, we'll be here for three hours if we keep talking about in it. In Jedi Jedi Rocks, like everyone's like perf- like this is like a real band that's like really slamming it out and like belting out the hits. And I feel like that's not really true to like what would happen in an actual crime den. Yeah, like in an actual crime den, it would be more Lefty Knock is just be like, this is my this is my cousin Gagush. He, right, he's a good on. He's he's going to be superstar. He did Gagush. Yeah, yeah. Just like some shitty guy in a synthesizer. Yeah, exactly, for sure. It is, you know, that from that opening, and then we go to the this vibrant forest world. We have these high speed chases. We've got these cute little Ewok creatures. This really crazy battle, um, and then of course the whole sword fight craziness with you know, or the whole like in big finale with Luke and the, the Emperor. And everything. It's it's Luke watching helplessly. Yeah, uh, in the uh, in the Emperor's throne room, uh, like knowing, like watching the poor poor Mon Calamari, like freaking out. It's a trap. It's a like and right. like uh, John Williams score the Battle of Endor music like. It's his score is less iconic, but the tension that it's like this battle hymn, this battle music, but there's still like a nervous energy to it. I still remember that like weird tension to this day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. they that so the ending is pulled off beautifully. Yeah, I, I I thought it was pretty solid. You know what I mean? What we're so well, and what I was saying to Jake earlier about the movies is I have decided. And I know I'm wrong. Okay, I'm wrong about everything in my life. Every Almost every decision I've made, everything I've ever done in my life is incorrect, okay? But I will say this. You're going to get married to Lexi. There you go. I was about to say, except for Lexi, everything's been just a horrible misstep. But I will say this. I do think that it really goes in the order of your favorite as a child is Return of the Jedi. You know, once you get a little bit older, maybe like high school or whatever, like it changes to a new hope. And then once you get a little more world weary, maybe it's college, maybe it's the end of high school or something like that. Around that time, you it's almost you 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 go empire. Right. And mm-hmm. it's almost like maybe it's like elementary, middle 
high school, right? It almost like would change in that way, right? And um, that's probably not necessarily true. And you can be the cool kid who always thought Empire was the best one and always saw through the bullshit, you know, <laughs> let's sell toys element to Return of the Jedi. But you know what, dude? You're wrong and you're a liar, okay? So, so having uh, done research... I don't think it's as simple as the Ewoks uh, were toys. No, no, no. Yeah. In yeah, fact, yeah. Um, if anything, the story of the making of Return of the Jedi is kind of uh, Lucasfilm triumphant. Lucasfilm, yeah. like having, because uh, it was a huge risk when you know uh, George Lucas put his own money on the line. Yes, he get- left. He 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 fully departs from the studio system for this third film, and that is going to make his life way more difficult. It becomes way harder to get a, find locations, find directors, find a director. Everything is he's he's out of the system, out of the union, mm-hmm. so everything's a little bit more of a challenge in terms of making but this movie. He gets so much control. Yes. And he gets to hire everyone that he loves. He gets, you know, he gets like all these all these brilliant people working around the clock to create these worlds. And uh, not only that, like he has a tough time writing. The script development of this was a weird nightmare with like all sorts of weird false starts and like turns that never went anywhere. Almost a little reminiscent of was it Never Ending Story, I believe, where where the script was like really late in the game. Was it that movie? I can't remember. It took a very long time for Lucas to finally get Kasdan to like commit and actually make it make the final script. Uh Um, And so, okay, so this is this is how deep this shit goes. Uh, Lucas was a fucking child of the 60s and 70s and he always wanted to do like in his mind uh after having worked with coppola and having like a failed start to get apocalypse now off the ground with him always had the this vision of star wars culminating in a like urban technology which if you think about thx 1170 whatever um he's not trustful of technology even though as a filmmaker he loves technology uh, he's not trust, you know, he te- cold technology versus harmonious nature. And the idea was originally that um, instead of a second Death Star, the Emperor would be on this just gross kind of uh, in, uh, gray city planet called Had Abaddon, mm. which is techni- I think the name of a demon in Christian mythology. <laughs> and the forest moon of Endor was going to be the actual moon. Because they keep saying forest moon, but you never see what planets attached. And Endor is actually also a religious reference. Endor, uh, what was it? Um, uh, well, the is a reference to the Bible. A village visited by King Saul before his final battle with the Philistines, and it also oddly enough appears in Lord of the Rings as the Elvish name for Middle Earth. Huh? Yeah. Neat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, he wanted the Wookies to be on Endor. But through making uh, A New Hope and Empire, Chewbacca was already too technologically inclined. Like, the Wookiees were already too He's too able to repair the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. To pretty much use and fix any weapon in the known galaxy. He has a laser crossbow. So, like, it's it's, for some reason, Wookiees got it. So, for that reason, Wookiees were off the table. So, he created this new race called uh, this harmonious kind of... It's very Avatar-like. His original vision... Uh, the Ewoks and the Yusums, mm-hmm. which had this like symbiotic relationship where the Ewoks were these tiny uh, creatures that weren't teddy bear like yet. That the art team kind of had to evolve that. Okay. And the Yusums were these tall, like gangly kind of symbiotic horse creatures that the Ewoks worked with and and rode with. 
So you know, by the way, this was inspired uh, apparently from uh, Lucas's view of the Vietnam War. That's and what they, I'm saying. Yeah, like so, it's totally supposed to be a Vietnam War analogy. Yeah. And as the, the less technically proficient uh, guerrilla uh, fighters who knew the land, who know, understand the yeah the terrain uh, prevailing against these the, the technically proficient uh, empire uh, yeah. troops, yeah. And that was a huge theme, and just it all got whittled away because they were the ones who had to actually make the thing happen. So they didn't have the means to create a city planet. They didn't have the means to film these short Ewoks and the Yusims in the same shot. Like there was no way to make it work on film. So those the Yusims are gone, and uh, George Lucas starts like just throwing shit against the wall. Like uh, maybe there's two Death Stars, and that's like the big reveal is that they try and fight one Death Star, and then like around the corner a second Death Star arrives. Oh shit! No, that doesn't quite work. Uh, then maybe they blow up the uh, the the the. They need to blow up the shields, but the shields are on the Death Star. Maybe the shields are on the planet, and that way Luke's on the Death Star, and they're fighting the shield thing on the planet. So that way everyone's busy. And like they're just they're iterate like uh, there's an actual piece of paper, one of those yellow notepads that Lucas has uh, doing one of his early like proto drafts of the script where he literally underlines the word uh, Leia's name and writes sister question mark. Like he didn't even like they they were down to the wire and he still was like, oh, yeah, that'll work. And is this during that two-week crazy last-minute conference, or is this all before that? That was before the conference. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll get to that then. So not only that, but he's hiring, like, two effects team. He Oh, so many effects. He has the proto-Pixar team doing sound and digital effects and doing stuff. They're working on other movies like Dragon Slayer and Star Trek II. Phil Tibbetts team in uh, California are working on... Uh, a lot of the monsters, like up to 40 monsters. Stuart Freeborn, who did the Yoda puppet, is in England working on Jabba the Hutt and the uh, Ewoks. And so, and Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnson and a bunch of other people whose names I'm forgetting are uh, cranking out uh, concept art. And George Lucas just kind of waltzes in, goes, no, no, keep working on this, keep working on this, I'm out. So this just roiling machine is just with a million different pieces all under Lucas's umbrella. They're building Skywalker Ranch at the time. This is not like Fox. Fox, the distributor, is breathing down Lucas's neck because they don't want to promote the movie because Empire, they feel like they got the short short end of the stick with Empire because although Empire was a hit, people weren't seeing it as many times as A New Hope. Hmm. because Empire ends on kind of a downer, <laughs> whereas A New Hope was like this revolutionary roller coaster of a movie that you could see a million times and I have mean, fun at. And speaking of a downer, it's uh, the whole, this is at first was supposed to end with this, you know, the rebellion is in a, in a tatters, the the uh, Luke is is just kind of destroyed by this. He's walking off into the sunset. Leia's, they shoved him in a fucking tank in his underwear. They wanted him. They wanted him to go off like a spaghetti western, like a Clint Eastwood type. You know, it's like he he prevails, but it's not a happy ending at the same time. You mm-hmm. know, and then Leia's struggling as 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 with her new du- duties as the queen and and that that's this d- difficult scenario for her like no one's just like yeah yeah like the the opposite in other words of the ending that we actually get in return of the jedi which mm. isn't necessarily a bad thing i think middle school me is bummed that it didn't end like that but like older less annoyed at happy endings me <laughs> i used to hate happy endings when i was like younger like oh. i hated happy endings especially in like 
romantic comedies and stuff, which is hilarious. But weird. Yeah, I just didn't like how. I just just like that's not how life is. Life doesn't just end with everybody just fucking. I mean, there's got to be some. It's got to be gray a little bit, you know what I mean? And which, which now I I love I love musicals now. I I I I, re, I get it now. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm trying to escape and like enjoy a romp right mm-hmm. now. Everything doesn't have to be like real. Like that's not the point of films always is like capturing real life in a bottle. But you know, back then that's the only kind of films I enjoyed. No, no. I ended happily ever after is for Disney movies and Disney movies are for babies. And I'm not a baby until you get older and you have to go to a shitty job every day of your life. And you're fucking, you know, people around you are dying and you're very upset all the time and you want to come home and maybe just throw on a fucking Disney movie. <laughs> Unless it's a Pixar movie. That'll make it worse because you put in Coco. Coco's <laughs> reminding you about all the things you're upset about. I'm sorry I'm so scattershot. It's just this... Yeah, you were making me shuffle through my notes at like an enormous Basically, what I'm trying right to Basically, what I'm trying to say is having done the research, the narrative that Return of the Jedi was a crass commercial, um, like just cynical sellout, I yeah. believe it is less that and more moments of true greatness ripped from the jaws of like compromise and learning. I think it goes back and forth, right? These the, so this is the statement on my end about the whole it's just a marketing ploy, right? And mm. this is the stigma that Lucas has achieved through the prequels especially and everything like that, right? But a big player in all of this who doesn't really exist in the story of Return of the Jedi but existed right before is Gary Kurtz. Mm. Gary Kurtz produced the first two films and he split from Lucas before the third due to personal disagreements. And it was, uh, Mark Hamill described it as like mom and dad getting a divorce. And Kurtz, in an LA Times interview, he's the one who argues the other way around after, you know, and, and, and why he left. He says, I could see where things were headed. The toy business began to drive the Lucasfilm empire. It's a shame. They make three times as much on toys as they do on films. It's natural to make decisions that protect the toy business, but that's not the best thing for making quality films. The emphasis on the toys, it's like the cart driving the horse. If it wasn't for that, the films would be done for their own merits. The creative team wouldn't be looking over their shoulder all the time. Um, and yeah, so so I, I, I think it's more gray than that. And I have a good quote for later from the director but first I want to talk a little bit about Lawrence Kasdan I know we talked about him in Empire Strikes Back but I do believe he does deserve still uh uh to have um a bit of his career reviewed and and how he ended up getting the gig to write for the Star Wars trilogy so um Lawrence Kasdan he wrote Empire Strikes Back he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and he wrote probably one one, in my opinion one of the best movies of all time the big dream catcher the Big Chill. Uh, if you haven't seen The Big Chill, it is. Uh, I think it's my parents' favorite movie, and like, it's a movie that I didn't see until college. And like, I don't know. Watch The Big Chill. It's really fucking good, and it's unbelievably written. By the way, when the uh, Patreon hits ten thousand dollars, we will be having an official premium donor key party. <laughs> So stay tuned for that. <laughs> stay tuned for that. We we will switch keys. We'll bring our ladies. It's gonna be crazy. I'm I not. Might, I'm not bringing my lady. I might suck a dick. You. See, all right. So we'll be the couple. I'll bring a lady. 
Just because well, it's just to be fair, but <laughs> this is what we'll do. One of us will dress fully in drag, <laughs> and we'll bring each other and pretend to be a lady. Yeah, we'll bring each other. Um, that's only fair. That's only fair, right? Yeah. And we'll just get crazy. And if if the walls aren't just covered in juices by the end of that thing, <laughs> I'm gonna be mad at all our patrons. So you know, no thank you in advance if you don't make that happen, patrons. At the um, very least, Mountain Dew. So Lawrence Kasdan was born in Miami, Florida, to a middle class Jewish household, but raised in West Virginia. He went to the University of Michigan with an M graduating with an MA in education with plans to be a fucking English teacher and then weirdly enough he was unable to find work as an English teacher and that's how he ended up getting like every single other writer that we've ever covered in this show who explored the caves behind their house they well, every time they go exploring those caves God they get it. an ad, they get a job offer to be a, a copywriter at an ad agency um but before that in school he studied under Kenneth Thorpe Rowe and this I think this guy had a major influence on Kasdan as he did on so many others he uh, Kenneth Thorpe Rowe taught Shakespeare and modern drama but he's notable for his students of playwriting along with Kasdan he taught Robert McKee uh, Mackie, right? It's mm -hmm. Mackie, right? Uh, who did all the storytelling seminars that influenced so many people. Uh, playwright Arthur Miller was probably his biggest one that he helped really become. Uh, he, just he, just low-key. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a feather in the cap. Yeah, right? And then also, um, among others, uh, Betty Smith, who wrote A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. So this guy really had a major impact on some giant successes. Well, he is uh, uh, working not happy at this advertising agency and uh, he's winning awards, he's doing well, he's excelling, but he's also hating it to the point where he finally decides to say, fuck it, fuck this shit, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, you get fucked, smoking a blunt, he throws the blunt, he threw a blunt at, a, at the boss. He was so cool back then, and he ends up moving to L.A. and starts writing screenplays. He gets rejected 67 times. My question is, he counts his rejections? Of course. If I counted my rejections, I don't know. I don't even think I'd be in this room right now. I'd, what, what do you, how many rejections do you think you've had? Oh, th bless you for thinking <laughs> I'm even considered to submit stuff. <laughs> I think I've been rejected formally on acting, writing. I mean, if you put it all together, getting his comedy show on television, I'm going to go with 137 times, I'm going to say. Probably, right? Maybe it's less, but I don't have a good opinion of myself these days. <laughs> he finally, I'm just kidding, guys. So, uh, go to twitter.com, at Holdenators, and let him know that he's a funny, good person. Be like, hey, you're funny, you're good, I'm sad, whatever you want to say to me, okay? Mm -hmm. I'll probably like it just because I'm, I'm desperate. You know <laughs> what I mean? So anyways, um, he gets rejected 67 times, but he finally sells his script for, I love this story, by the way, for what will become a, a project in development hell called The Bodyguard. He sells this movie when not in the 90s in the mid 70s as a vehicle for diana ross and steve mcqueen it was known kind of like um being john malkovich for the longest time it was known as the best unmade script in hollywood and uh it was later of course made with whitney houston and kevin costner in the 90s and it was this big commercial success um I think but, I heard about this on a podcast. Once. I know, right? I know we're rehashing some stuff, so I'll keep it brief-ish. But I also have pe people also go like, why are you skip over stuff just because you said it in a different episode? Nobody oh. said First of all. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, stop Adrian! harassing me about my podcast. I was like, all right, I will do an episode on Commando for the love of the Lord. 
That was Schwarzenegger. Oh, is that Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> embarrassing. I'll do fine. I will do an episode. I'm of sorry. The I'm sorry. Let me do that right. That was that was Schwarzenegger. <laughs> fine. I will do an episode on die. I'm the Die Hard trilogy for the love of the Lord. <laughs> so, anyways, he around this time though that that kind of puts him on the map. And then, uh, not too long after that, he sells a screenplay called Continental Divide to Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Now, this is the first film that was produced on by Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, his, his own production company. And it starred John Belushi and Blair Brown. It's about a big city reporter who has to hide out in the Rockies where he's to interview Brown, a reclusive scientist there to research bald eagles. So it's a little bit of an odd couple situation. I've never seen it. I don't know if anyone has. So it doesn't matter, though. Lucas then commissions Kasdan to write Raiders of the Lost Ark and also to help him finish um, Empire Strikes Back. So uh, th- that's that's pretty how he gets into the whole system, right? Obviously, Raiders, giant success. Empire Strikes Back, one of the greatest you know sci-fi films of all it, time. It was um, it was Raiders' success more than Empire's that mm. let Return of the Jedi get made. Mm. Um, that's and- such a weird thing to think about, right? I mean, what is hailed as one of the great, like the best movie in the most well-known mm-hmm. trilogy in film in American cinema. You know, it's just unbelievable, right? I mean, they probably could have got it done, but it was the success of Raiders that gave them the cushion to go full balls to the walls with it. Uh, And that's also where uh, it's also working on Raiders of the Lost Ark that uh, George Lucas picked up his uh, new producer after Kurtz, Mm -hmm. a guy named Howard Kazanjian. Yes, Howard Kazanjian, uh, working closely with him. And this is what's interesting about this. They're all about to kind of join one think tank and mm. it's not really like any one person but before we get there he also has to lock in a director before they can even finish the script the director ends up being very involved in the writing process by, by the mm. end now lucas is tapping a bunch of different people to direct this movie with the uh problem being that if you remember from the empire strikes back episode his his weird decision at the time to just launch into the movie without featuring the director's name first uh, got him kicked out of the director's guild yes. and had a like no work like thing uh, done on his name. So this he was is like so, Can you people imagine like listening to this right now? It was that big of a deal that there weren't opening credits to his movie, which is not even a thing that people give any kind of a shit about anymore, mm-hmm. right? I don't think, I mean, I don't think it's in any way frowned upon anymore. Like make the movie you want to make. If it has opening credits, a lot of times I feel like a lot of opening credits, generally the movie's trying to make a callback to to cinema of old time. Yeah, the, you know? the the only times I really like notice opening credits now is when they're making them as a joke. Yeah, or when, yeah, or like you said, when someone's trying to like make their movie seem classic uh, and cool. It's escaping me right now. The black and white silent film that came out, the uh, artist, the artist, right? Yeah, like that was a, a good example of that, right? We're trying to convey to you. We're trying to set the scene. This is an old timey approach to filming so we're gonna have a bunch of opening credits um not not really a big deal anymore but uh that makes things definitely a lot harder um his first choice was steven spielberg and that's immediately out of the question because of the director's guild Mm -hmm. situation um uh, then you also have i and i would have liked to see this but you have david lynch yeah uh, uh was his next choice he had just gotten an oscar nomination for the elephant man but he declined to go off and make dune 
of course. And then Cronenberg was up next, which, I mean, I don't know. Canadian, out of the American Guild. I don't know that I... What do you think of Cronenberg? It's just Jabba's, like, stomach just busts open and, like, a bunch of fucking alien monsters pop Yoda out of it. Yoda pukes into Luke's open mouth and, like, <laughs> Luke reaches into his, his his gums and pulls out a gun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, just, just would be so disturbing. Uh, he says no. Uh, he he's gonna go off and do his own auteur thing. He wants to go make Videodrome and the Dead Zone. So he's he says no to that. And finally, he lands on Richard Marquand. Richard Marquand, born in Lannishan, Cardiff, Wales. Of course, again, what probably him being an Englishman takes him out of the Directors Guild of America. Is that not correct, Jake? Uh. I was trying to figure out if there was any other cool directors. <laughs> no, I was just saying him being British takes him out of being a director, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, oh, also, oh, out of being in the director. I found the America. list. I found the list of potential okay. directors. I missed John some. Carpenter was considered. What? Uh, Richard Lester, the Superman 2 guy. Tony Scott was considered. Uh, uh, who else? Who else? Terry Gilliam was considered because technically he wasn't in the guild. And uh, Richard Donner, the Superman 1 guy. Uh, was also got on eaten, the list. Got eaten in the Donner party. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> you bastard. Uh, <laughs> check it out on Last Podcast on the Left. Um, so, yes, uh, but Richard Marquand, his mother was a Labor Party member of Parliament and a minister in the post-Second World War Labor government. His brother would also become a member of Parliament as well, so a pretty prestigious family he's coming from. He uh, ended up doing his obligatory military service, posted up in Hong Kong, and his career began with television documentaries for the BBC. His first non-documentary that he did incorporated these documentary-style techniques in a biopic in 1979 called Birth of the Beatles. This focused on their early history. After that, he does a bunch of children's films and then goes on, uh, uh, oh, including Big Henry and the Polka Dot Kid for which he wins an Emmy. So he's starting to get his name on the map. But really, it was a film in 1981 called Eye of the Needle that catches George Lucas's Eye of the Necklace Man. <sighs> Either way, just fucking... Put me in a cannon, man. Shoot me somewhere. I don't care where I go, dude. <laughs> Hopefully there's a trampoline at the end of it, but who gives a shit? Anyways, he um this is a pretty cool I wanna kinda wanna go back and watch this. It's a British spy film about a German spy in England during World War II who discovers vital intel about the soon-to-be D-Day invasion and attempts to return to Germany but gets stranded on an island off the coast of Scotland. It was on the strength of this film that Lucas says, Hey, can you do the Lucas asking? Uh, yeah, you'll do. Hello, chap. I made a movie about the Beatles, I did, and I'd like to direct Return of the Jedi. I'm sorry, I meant, did I say Return? I meant Revenge of the Jedi. Uh, according to uh, Marquand, uh, George's uh, response after the first meeting was, I like you. Uh, It should also be noted that uh, uh, in Marquand, uh, Lucas saw a guy who would do what Lucas wanted, which was give him, uh, like, organize these massive sets and extras and keep everything running smooth. And most importantly, get the coverage that Lucas wanted, because when filming Empire Strikes Back, Kirshner worked off his own basically uh, internally developed storyboards. And Kirshner just basically got the shots that he wanted 
and just you know it was like no I know how and in a way it's why the movie feels more coherent yeah and kind of more singularly uh, uh, executed whereas uh, Return of the Jedi was shot for tons of coverage with tons and tons of takes with tons and tons of setups so that Lucas could go back and as a because he was an editor at heart built the film from the raw materials that he was given, which it's, is how he was more comfortable. Lu- Lucas performed a bit of a magic trick here, right? Marquand balanced out what he couldn't do. Marquand, and Lucas really loved this about him, was really good with the actors. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And Because Lu- Lucas, that's the thing, Lucas. Why could. are the meat puppets crying again? Marquand, I don't understand. <laughs> Marquand has two things going for him that Lucas wants. He's really good with the actors, and he knows nothing about the special effects side. Mm. So therefore, Lucas is necessary on set all the time. He's got to be there because he needs to help him because he doesn't have this knowledge. So he's got to be there really being super involved in all of the shooting. And at the same time, uh, Marquand's off on the side making sure that the actors um, don't want to stab George Lucas to death, you know, as they were prone to do. But also Marquand, big Star Wars fan. He says this directly. He says, I am a tremendous Star Wars fan. I know the story means an enormous love to me I love the characters in a way I felt like a young man who knows the music of Beethoven extremely well and who was finally asked to play it with the London Symphony Symphonic Orchestra but it's also funny he's really good at analogies he also said it's like um Having Lucas around all the time, he said it's like uh, directing a performance of King Lear with Shakespeare on the set. It was very difficult for him. It was very all right, he's up, Mark Watt. Oh, I'm sure Lucas loved that quote. I'm sure Lucas just went around and was just like, hey, honey, um, let's. Uh, it's time for us to fuck. Uh, I've been compared to William Shakespeare. <laughs> I got to work on my, my Lucas impression. You do it so much better, Jake. Uh, so anyways. Just, just imagine uh, a robot filled with mucus. <laughs> and just like Im- like physically just like like dissociate your neck from the rest of your body. Like you, you have no neck. <laughs> like become one with no neck. <laughs> hey everybody, Holden here. And today I want to talk to you about the electric toothbrush Quip. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. People brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive, but Quip uses sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums. It's like they're getting a professional massage. And get this, every month, new brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. I don't know about you, but I am always waiting way too long for a new brush, so this is perfect for me. Finally, I'm brushing for the correct amount of time with brushes that are not too old and therefore ineffective, and dang it, it just feels good. That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com forward slash wizard right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash wizard. So now they have all these people put together, but they need one more person to fill it out. They need one more consultant who would end up getting uh, uncredited uh, contribu- giving uncredited contributions, and that man's name is David Peoples. He uh, he uh, wrote on Blade Runner, Unforgiven, and Twelve Monkeys, among others. He's like a great writer, and so uh, now it's late in the game. They've got this story. They've been putting everything together, but this is when and and even pre-production is happening at this moment. There's no script finished at all, like far from finished. Um, 
The production team is actually using Lucas's story and rough draft to communicate to the art department uh, what they need to be working on during during development. Uh, but the shooting script ends up being completed in two weeks by this think tank. Uh, Lucas, Kasdan, Mark Wand, and Kazanjan together in one room. Just, ju- you know, and Kazdan, they recorded the whole conference. And Kazdan takes the tape transcripts of the meetings and creates the final script from all of that. Um, and, and they're arguing about everything. They mm-hmm. like, should Yoda die? Like, where? Where it's like, what are Han and Leia doing? Like, what? Like, uh, like I said, the decision to get the shield generator. Because when you think of the um, the the whole new Death Star shield generator setup, it makes n- why w- if you can project shields, why wouldn't you just put it on the thing you want shielded? It makes yeah. no fucking sense. Uh-huh. Um, but that was because they just could not figure out a way to get Han and Leia on the forest planet doing something that means anything if Luke is on the Death Star fighting the Emperor. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the the familial connection, like uh, the idea that how Darth Vader uses the threat of turning Leia to the dark side to finally get Luke to, like, flip out and, like, almost lose himself. Like, these are all things that had to be worked out in a in a in in this conference rather than fully formed from the mind of a single author right and so that's where some of the weaknesses i feel like of mm. of uh jedi kind of come through uh-huh. um where george lucas's weird vietnam vision wasn't able to wasn't filmable at the time and so like there are all these conferences uh compromises happening stuff like you know the the barge the the entire Jabba episode is completely disconnected from everything. Yes, it's so just um, flat. It feel and it, it you know and as a kid again it was so flashy and so over the top with all these crazy monsters right up top that I just loved it. You know, mm-hmm. but from a from a standpoint, especially after having learned more about writing, script writing, and things like that, you look back on it and you're just like, this is like barely necessary or this doesn't come back around in any way whatsoever it's just a way to start a, a big sci-fi action movie with a bang you know yeah. but it's like has nothing to do with the rest of it yeah but then they still introduce the emperor and like you know they they assure people that don't worry there's going to be a cool starship battle but yeah. for now let's go and look at bib fortuna the two dick headman <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, by the way, in the original script, and don't was- forget our good friend Salacious Crumb. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, it w- originally in the script it was it's a trick, not it's a trap. Yeah. That ended up getting changed after, weirdly enough, after test screenings. So, I- according to legend, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lucas had ordered all these various monsters. You know, Lucas had gotten the concept art team. To like make all these monster designs. At one point, Ralph McQuarrie quit because he was frustrated with the uh, the Ewok designs. But um, once the creatures were kind of cr- like created, uh, Marquand and Lucas kind of walked among Phil, Phil Tibbet, who we talked about from uh, the uh, Jurassic Park episode, dinosaur supervisor Phil Tibbet, um, and was just like, "So who should be the rebel commander?" and Mark one was like, what? He's like, pick one of these guys. <laughs> and so it was like his decision to be like the squid fucker. <laughs> He's the boss. And George was like, really? He's kind of kind of goofy. <laughs> and like Mark was like, in this universe, even the goofy squid guy yeah. is important. Yes. I love that. And um, I, I just have to wonder, <laughs> how did they end up changing it after a test screening? Like, 
how did did someone just raise their hand like what do you think could be better about this movie and someone's just like it should be it's a trap i think that'll be a meme later <laughs> like what <laughs> like, can i can i tell the dumbest personal anecdote yes um, when I was uh, doing, uh, when I was performing comedy on the anime convention circuit uh, for a good chunk of the 2000s, uh, me and the other comedians had a long-running gag where we would just say things that uh, in the in the Admiral Akbar voice at random intervals to make us laugh, and it was the dumbest running joke ever. Where we'd just be eating lunch, and I'd hold up my uh, my tortilla and just go, "It's a wrap." <laughs> and everyone would laugh or some of my friend would just like get up and start running around the table and we'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? And then he'd circle the table once and then he'd go, it's a lap. <laughs> and that was, that was fun. Did you ever walk out of the bathroom and say it's a crap? I did. Yes. Yeah, actually. Good, work. good work, buddy. Um, Maybe say uh, we were looking for directions. And obviously you got to yell. It's a, it's a map. <laughs> oh, it's a map. It's a map. <laughs> How can you slap? Did you ever <laughs> I guess this is before the Yes, someone did actually slap someone across the face and in the moment of hurt and confusion just go, it's a slap. <laughs> God, why? It's, it's a, you know I lost my virginity at a late age? Did you know that? Um, like later than most. I wasn't aware. I thought you were fucking in middle school. <laughs> I thought you were that guy. I thought you I thought you changed. I thought those were your best years situation. No, no, no. no. I mean, Fat Camp was a whole other story, but we've talked about that. So now they need to uh, get the get the gang back together, right? Now it's time to get all the boys and girls into the room and make this movie. Um, but there's one issue with that. One of the actors, not so sure they ever wanted to come back. That's right. Harrison Ford initially wanted to be killed off in Empire Strikes Back. But it was Kazanjin, apparently, who convinced him to return. He says of this... I played a very important part in bringing Harrison back to for Return of the Jedi. Harrison, unlike Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill, signed only a two-picture contract. That is why he was frozen in carbonite in The Empire Strikes Back. When I suggested to George we should bring him back, I distinctly remember him saying that Harrison would never return. I said, what if I convinced him to return? George simply replied that he would then write him into Jedi. I had just recently negotiated his deal for Raiders of the Lost Ark with Phil Gersh of the Gersh Agency. I called his son, took the call, and we negotiated Harrison's deal. When Phil returned to the office several weeks later, he called me back and said I had taken advantage of his son in the negotiations. I had not, but agents are agents. (laughs) Which I don't know. It seems like he took advantage of that man's son. <laughs> One of the big things in the story conference that uh, was another big headache for the team was now that Harrison Ford was back, what the fuck did they do with Billy D. Williams? Because the whole point of Lando was kind of this insurance policy that they could still have a swaggering rogue. Right. Um, that sounded weird. Uh, <laughs> what, a swaggering rogue? Uh, and uh, so they didn't know what to do with him. And that's how he ended up in the Millennium Falcon with Nyenyub. Yeah, uh, it just just to get him in there. I bet he was pissed. Uh, he was worried. Billy D. Williams was genuinely worried that he would lose out on the opportunity because he was sold on the idea that he would have a much bigger role in the next movie. The other thing, Ford and Kasdan both wanted Solo to be killed off via self-sacrifice in the final film. They wanted to do it early in the film to raise the stakes for everyone else to make it so that, and I think that would have been a smart choice to make it like, oh, shit. Anyone can die in this movie at any time. 
because mm-hmm. we killed Han. And I love that, you know, spoiler alert, they do that, uh, kind of do that later in the new trilogy, right? Um, I, I love that they still were faithful to the, he's got to go at some point in the movie, yeah. you know, situation. I mean, um, f- uh, from a storytelling standpoint, Han basically had nowhere else to go. He was redeemed through the power of love and had sacrificed himself in a way. Yeah. So, you know, he's basically reduced to like kind of this gag character, you know, Boba Fett, where? Right. Um, and it's, it's you know, I'm glad to see him. He's a charming actor. But, you know, he's, his sole job is just to go like, way to go, Fuzzbucket. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, there's. Han Solo? In the, in Jedi? Yeah. Oh, just his role in Jedi. Yeah, 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 yeah. That he, it's, it's just kind of, he's, you know, because he believes in the Force. He found love. He uh, got out of his, he got out of Hawk with uh, Jabba the Hutt. Like, he's full gung-ho for the Empire. He's he's you know there's just nothing left for him to do. Another, uh, I mean, for the rebellion. And you this, know by I mean. the way, though, is another cynical take: is that Lucas, who rejected the idea outright, other people claim that it was to sell more merchandise, and you know, that, like having the happy ending and everything, right? And he that that was, is that is the cynical take. You know what it is? Is um, what made the first two movies uh, great is that it kind of harkened back to childhood stories that Lucas had grown up with, like the Flash Gordon serials, but it updated it. And um, this was the first movie that I feel like having seen the repercussions of because, you know, Empire, because they were working on this as Empire was coming out to theaters. Dude, you know what it's like? What? It's like Weezer. Oh. The Blue Album, A New Hope, mm-hmm. right? Sets the stage. Big hit, big crazy hit. Pinkerton, Empire Strikes Back, right? A everyone bit darker. Everyone put their guts into it, right? Wanted to make this dark, amazing thing that was gonna like change the whole game, right? But the powers that be reacted poorly to that. The industry reacted badly to that. So Lucas becomes cynical, much like Rivers Cuomo says, okay, fuck, fuck, then I guess I'll just go make the Green Album and pump out the quote-unquote hits for you fuckers and make music for little kids. Boom! I found the perfect analogy. And everybody listening at home, you're like, oh man, he just came up with the best analogy. And you know what? You can laud me for it anytime you want on any brand of social media. Jake is starting to leave the room. He's getting very upset. He's not happy with the analogy. But listeners at home. And the award for best analogy in a podcast series goes to. Trump's like a Kindiru fish from Pod Save America. Oh, uh, we got robbed. Are you kidding? I, I'm sorry. I don't know what it's. God save America. I fuck, I know. I know. I know. Uh, I know. It's it's political, man. It's all it's all just fucking people jerking each other. At least give it to, uh, f- you know, fucking. Um, I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> at least give it to Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they almost. I mean, they almost kicked Rogan out of the academy for his doing DMT is like fucking uh, <laughs> a god. <laughs> um. So speaking of making it for children, uh, this definitely backs up that point. Lucas actually conferred with a children's psychologist about the plot of the film, and that's actually what led him to include that scene with Yoda. Uh, The the child psychologist convinced him to do it because he said, you know, kids need the reinforcement that um, Vader is definitely Luke's father. Yes. Because it left a little doubt in the second one, a little bit. That, on you know, the playgrounds of America, people were actively ch- 
children and adults all in the same playground. All in the same playground. Are you kids talking about Empire? Move over, Billy. Back in the 70s, there used to be uh, adults used to play on playgrounds more regularly, and they had children, adult Back in the 70s, mixes. you could just pick up a stranger's child exactly. and just shake him around a this little. This is before this serial is killers <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the Catholic Church, you know, and all that good stuff. So, um, But, uh, you know, yeah, there was a point of contention that, like, was, was it true or was it some kind of weird mindfuck tactic? Uh, but also, the scene with Yoda, it's genuinely touching. And uh, between Frank Oz's performance and Kasdan's writing, the idea that, like, you know the, the acceptance of death uh what's the actual line like like twilight is upon us soon night will come like it's fucking really touching and really good uh you know when 900 old 900 years old just not so good looking you will be or whatever you know it's all like, that's a very touching scene that's one of the high points in this movie for me mm. uh and it's not just because i'm a sucker for muppets I am. We are though. Both I'm of us. a total. I'm. I'm crying right now. So filming begins in. Oh, really quick too. Obi Wan Kenobi was originally going to return to life from his. Oh ghost yeah, force that was form. weird. That was weird. I'm actually surprised that that didn't end up being the case, just because of all of the other changes to make it shinier and happier. Like, th- thank you by the way for not doing that. That would have been so lame if he came back to life. That would have been so stupid. Filming begins uh, the year of my birth, January of 1982. Uh, and goes until May. It lasts for four months. And it's done on a budget of $32.5 million. The project had a working title of Blue Harvest with the tagline Horror Beyond Imagination. This, of course, was to hide the fact that this shooting was happening from fans and press. It was also, though, a way for them to conceal the film from vendors, from the place they're renting you know, location space from, from everything. Because yeah. if they knew that they were... Uh, uh, the money, if they knew the money factory was yes. renting your space... Maybe prices. You'd probably charge them a lot, lot more. So they're trying to avoid that price gouging. Uh, This was actually Kazanjin's idea. And he even went as far as printing out uh, the logo on T-shirts, caps, coats, buttons, signs, invoices, and stationery even were all made with the Blue Harvest logo and the most boring tagline ever, Horror Beyond Imagination. The one thing, though, if you look at Google image search, the logo, it has the same lettering as the Star Wars logo. Uh, the title uh, was also apparently what? <laughs> so that just means they're like, oh, we're going to be deceitful, but we still think but you're still, idiots. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, Blue Harvest is apparently a- somewhere picky wick catering in London is just like, oi, what's all this? <laughs> 50 pence for an eel pie. And a uh, proper robbery. <laughs> <laughs> the title is a play on Dashiell Hammett's 1929 novel Red Harvest, which was an influence on Kurosawa's Yojimbo, which was a big influence on Star Wars. Nerds. Oh, shit. Nerds, every one of them. Perfect analogy. First shoot. The <laughs> yeah. first shoot was actually a cut scene in which the gang gets caught in a sandstorm uh, while leaving Tatooine. This was completely cut. This was one of the pretty much the, one of the only big sequences that was fully cut from the film. Oh God! So they were using a like vermiculite sand, which is like this artificial sand uh, mixed with powdered cork. And uh, even though they had rehearsed it several uh, several times, um, it's just while filming in studio, the clouds of toxic dust would 
overwhelmed the cast and crew, making visibility and getting God. the shots impossible. Uh, the entire team had to wear like full body coveralls and masks so they don't breathe the cancer dust, making it impossible to communicate because no one could tell who was who on the set. So that's it. Just was a botched sequence. It was a it was a botched sequence. Uh, on the first day of filming, uh, two things happened. Um, Carrie Fisher nearly died because the hotel room. Uh, HVAC, you know, the uh, air and heating system uh, was pumping uh, toxic gas fumes into uh. her room. Oh, my God. And she had to leave and, like, get checked out of the hospital. Um, and uh, the uh, car that was supposed to get Mark Hamill uh, was robbed on the way to pick him up. And he had to hitch a ride with Harrison Ford. Oh, my God. So already off to a great start to film the cancer dust sequence that didn't work out. So um, the first couple of months of shooting takes place at Elstree Studios in England. This was first opened in 1925 by the British National Pictures Limited after purchasing 40 acres of land for two giant film stages, which would expand to many other, I believe, nine stages uh, in total. Um, there, Alfred Hitchcock made Blackmail, which was the first British talkie. Um, <laughs> for all you kids know, that means the first uh, British film that had people actually speaking that you could hear uh, before... Uh, uh, before that, it was silent films. Uh, the Star Wars and Indiana Jones sequels were all shot there during the golden age of the construction picture. What I mean by that is that time when they were doing big special effects and needed giant sound stages because they were all pretty manually created before CGI took over. That was known as the construction picture. Uh, Return of the Jedi, yes, it was nine stages. They used all nine stages at the studio, completely took it over. Uh, originally, uh, going back to the Rancor, George Lucas originally wanted Luke Skywalker's battle with the Rancor Beast to be uh, a guy in a suit. He was heavily inspired by Toho's Godzilla, mm -hmm. and he wanted to recreate the feel of that kind of monster, but after several failed attempts, they ended up using a high-speed puppet instead. Please tell me footage exists. I really want to see the footage of the guy in the there Rancor is. suit. Oh, okay, There is. Great. There absolutely is behind-the-scenes footage of a guy in a Rancor suit, oh, and beautiful. it looks super rad. <laughs> uh, the behind-the-scenes of, especially on Phil Tippett's end, is meticulous. You can find so many cool uh, archival images of just all these fucking madmen working on latex abominations. And we should give a little credit too to the book. Um the uh the Rancor was like a mix of stop motion as well as like kind of uh this very like guide like a pup a wire controlled puppet uh mixed with a giant Rancor hand that they would use for close up shots of like the pig guard getting grabbed and then cut to the toy pig guard getting eaten by the uh mm. the Rancor. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. it's uh so it was just a it's 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 fun. It's fun and good. Well, I was gonna say we should give credit to the book too. What the the making of Return of the Jedi, correct? I I mean I only got forty three percent through it, <laughs> but uh, J W I I have to say his name correctly. I want to say Sizzler Rinsler <laughs> J W Rinsler, who also whose book uh, the making of Empire Strikes Back was super clutch for our uh, Empire Strikes Back episode. Hell yeah! He is basically Lucasfilm's official. Official, I guess, archivist story. Biographer. But that's the word. Thank you. There you go. Um, and in a recent interview I listened to, he actually uh, kind of uh, lamented that after, in a post-Disney uh, acquisition, there is no more Lucasfilm archive. There is no more, like, central location where you can just walk up and, like, get the boxes of shit that he needed to make these books. 
So after England, they move over to the Yuma Desert in Arizona for those Tatooine exteriors. Then in the indoor forest exteriors sh are shot in the Redwood Forests of Northern California. Lastly, finally, the ten day there were ten days of blue screen shots compl to complete the filming at uh, in, um, Industrial Light and Magic. Mm -hmm. Thank God. I was like, I again had a weird blank out just then, and I just had ILM on this sheet, and I'm like, ooh, in San Rafael, California. So George Lucas uh, on the set a bunch. He's all over it to the point where he even operates the B camera a few times as well. But shooting seems, besides that awful uh, opening to the shooting. There was a few rough shots. Um, the, uh, the Ewok capture scene. Uh, the cameras that they were using were so like huge and wide angled that they were having trouble like uh, suspending the actors a safe distance and not seeing the ground in the shot. So they eventually just were like, fuck it. I hope you don't die and hoisted them like 30 feet in the air. Oh so that, then figuring out a rig to get this giant bulky fucking camera up there. Um, there was a specific like, uh, uh, Technicolor uh, is a Vista Vision camera that they needed to use for matte shots, mm. which uh, everything from the Emperor's entrance to Endor, like tons of of shots uh, that they refer to as the dinosaur because it was so heavy and unwieldy and impossible to like position correctly. Also, speaking of camera rigs, this was one of the earliest and most interesting uh, early uses of the Steadicam. The Steadicam is a camera stabilizer that mechanically isolates the operator's movement to get a smooth shot even when moving over an irregular surface. So essentially it's that weird rig on a dude's uh, stomach that even though he's moving, the camera stays exactly where it is. I, I love watching footage of or just being up close and personal with someone using a steady cam rig. It is so cool looking. It's like talking to a cyborg. It's so neat. And so before that, I mean, can you if you could imagine before this, they the only way you could get um like a, a steady camera shot that moved like that was only e either via uh, mounting it on a dolly or a very, very skilled camera op, op, like essentially a surgeon level camera operator that could keep his hand still enough and manually hold the camera and like run around with it. This was invented by Garrett Brown, who originally named it the Brown Stabilizer, which sounds more like a, like a anti-diarrhea yeah, medicine. Yeah, exactly. anti-diarrhea medicine. Uh, first, he used he it was first used in the Woody Guthrie biopic Bound for Glory in 1976. Also, very notably, it was used in The Shining by Stanley Kubrick on multiple times in that. Sometimes I mean, you can't get a dolly; you got to go steady. And Brown himself operated the Steadicam in the Redwood Forest. This is when the Steadicam was used in uh, Return of the Jedi. Um, he it, it was during post-production shoots. He walked through the forest. I love this. He walked through the forest at approximately five miles per hour with the Steadicam while, while shooting at one frame per second. And then they projected the footage at 24 frames per second to achieve the effect that it was moving at 120 miles per hour in order to get those crazy fast chase sequences. That's my... I didn't know that. It isn't that fucking rad? That's super rad. I, I love that. I think that, and I love that the man who invented it himself is the man who is operating that camera. And I think it really allows me to go back and really appreciate those chase sequences. How cool is that? It goes on a little long. Yeah. It gets a little pod racy. It's, uh, it's cool. <laughs> pod racing's cool too. John Williams, of course, returns for the score. 
Mm-hmm. He conducts it with performances by the London Symphony Orchestra done at, um, what was it? It's not Apple Studio. It's uh, Abbey Road, right? Mm-hmm. Is where they do it. And uh, his son actually writes the lyrics to that Ewok song. That Yub Nub? Oh, the original one. I think they replaced it in the special edition. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yub Nub or whatever it is. Yub Nub, Chub Chub, Yub Nub. Yeah, uh, by the way. Uh, by the way, uh, by the way uh, John Williams' son, totally the lead singer of Toto. So uh, enjoy that, everybody. Dude, it is just Speaking so... of Weezer, it all comes full Why circle. Why is the internet obsessed with fucking this song? Like, what is... Uh, I don't... It's I... surprisingly good considering the weird cheese that it's born from. Yes. And without, like... And so the generation that, like, didn't grow up um, with, like, Metallica and alt-rock as an explicit rejection of that cheese has no point of reference to, like, hate it for any reason. Right. And on top of that, there's irony points because it's a bunch of, like, very sincere 80s white dudes being like, I bless the rains down in Africa. I bless the rains. <laughs> Things are never This has been your internet culture moment with Jake Young. Also, Thomas Newman gets uh, an orchestration credit. He... Uh, was a composer on Shawshank Redemption, Wally, Road to Perdition, and so many others. I just picked a few movies he did. He's done a ton of movies. This soundtrack, I don't. I it's it's there's some weird highs and lows. Um, specifically, uh, I feel like Empire Strikes Back. Uh, John Williams got to do more uh, emotional heavy lifting, and his score got to like shine brighter. Whereas, uh, like, the initial scenes with, like, Jabba the Hutt are, like, heavily, are a lot of dialogue, and Jabba's theme is, like, literally fat guy tuba music. It's like... The, uh, a lot of, like, uh, weird tribal instruments and stuff that they're on recorders and timpanis and all this uh, for the Ewok music. But the Battle of Endor music, which is, like, broken down into, like, Battle of Endor 1, 2, and whatever, is so good. And it's, like I said before, that tension uh, plus the weird dark chorus theme of yeah. the Emperor's theme. Yeah. So, like, even though I, I, this is, like, a weaker score in the Star Wars canon, there's still beautiful moments such as when the Emperor's chorus theme like kind of reaches its peak just as just as Luke kind of unleashes his anger and fights Darth Vader and what is one of the best sort literally the best lightsaber duel in the entire original trilogy if not like the entire series if you're one of those people that aren't impressed with cool flips Darth Maul Darth Maul's very good Darth Maul's very good um but if you're if you're cynical and you just want two people who like want to cry fight it out with laser swords. Yeah. Have you ever in interviews George Lucas still like says laser sword? <laughs> <laughs> he like refuses to say lightsaber, and it's very funny. That's bizarre. Um, but this is something. Uh, on so you know who ends up getting a lot of who does a lot of work and that should be recognized is uh, Ben Burt, the sound designer, the sound effects guy. Does a lot of really cool shit in this from like the sound of the speeder bikes to, yeah. uh, uh, cr- you know, helping create Hutties, um, finding the salacious crumb laugh. These are the, okay. Here's two bits about the uh, sound design in, uh, in Return of the Jedi that I really want to, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention. Um, Job of the Hutt's like weird, sickly, like slimy, like background uh, sound like his slithering uh-huh. like goopness just everything about that is so gr- like whole area is so gross right um, and i'm sure the sound there were up. up to uh 
So that was so besides uh besides the actual like atu chaka dupa but solo ha um I was terrible. That was terrible That was great. That was so good. There's people out there who can do some real solid job. I like Chipotle loco. Jedi. You have to like get a random like word that you actually do recognize in there for a good. Um, well, that's what I would say. For loco Jedi. <laughs> Chipotle Jedi for loco. <laughs> Barbacoa. <laughs> Bar- carnita barbacoa. I want burrito mild and medium with beans. And- <laughs> That's how Guacamole extra. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, so that slime noise—the the weird, like sickly, like. Yes, yes, the slime noise. Uh, that is uh, Ben Burt actively squishing a pan of his wife's macaroni and cheese. Nice. Um, Gotta love it. And this is fucking crazy because this is the thing that, especially in the analog days, sound designers had to do, is he always carried a tape recorder with him in case he heard a noise that, like, he thought he could use. And so um, the sound of Han Solo getting thawed out of the carbonite, that like whooshy technological, like coming back to life noise is this is fucked up. It's his own child's ultrasound heartbeat. Whoa. That like when he was there with his wife. That's awesome. He just like started hearing the noise and was like, fuck, that's perfect. And took out his tape recorder. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. So it's post-production time, obviously. They're working on the score, and Industrial Light and Magic is just pushed to its absolute limit, as Jake said before. They really are trying to raise the bar effects-wise from the last two films in the series. Because they're an independent – they're a company separate from Lucasfilm now. Like, So they're not only uh, doing this to to make George Lucas look good. They're doing this to secure their – Futures as effects artists for Hollywood. So they're like a game dev late in development right here. It is 20-hour days, six-day weeks. They're trying to meet their goal by April 1st, 1983. There were approximately 900 special effects shots. Um, They had like 400 uh, optic shots that they subcontracted to outside effects houses. And that ended up being uh, severely delaying the film as ILM had to reject about 100,000 feet of film that they got back from those outside effects houses after it failed different tests and stuff that they, they did with it. But at the end of the day, they, they, you know, they reach their goal. They make it, make it to the finish line just barely um, with the film. That was released. Um, opening day was May 25th, 1983, with the film they've been working so hard on, of course, called Revenge of the Jedi. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, Revenge of the Jedi. You know, they made posters for it and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so apparently this this movie was initially called Return of the Jedi. Then it was Kasdan who told Lucas that's a weak title. So Lucas changes the name to Revenge of the Jedi, but later Lucas walks this back as as he put it in it for his reasoning, at least the reason he gave was that Jedi would never seek revenge or they should never at least seek revenge. Thousands of revenge posters had already been printed at this point. Um, they're cool looking. They, they, they look really neat. And they were sent out before, uh, many were sent out before Lucasfilm stopped production of them. They sold the remaining posters that they had in stock with the revenge title um, to Star Wars fan club members. So that's pretty cool. So those people probably kept those in pretty good condition, too. Hey, do you want to hear a crossover? Sure. One of Industrial Light and Magic's first outside clients was uh, 
Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, yes. which was originally titled Star Trek II The Revenge of Khan. And that's another reason people give why they changed the title. They didn't want it to be similar um, and by the way, it well, was, no, they made they made their they made Paramount change from yeah. Revenge to Wrath because they didn't want that heat. It was Vengeance of Khan, by the oh, way. Oh, that okay, Vengeance right. of Khan. Well, I think they also give that reason for Star Wars. So I think maybe maybe it's a little cross situation mm. where they both walked away because from that because they didn't want it to be similar. Uh, also, though, of course, people say that the title change was for Lucas uh, to throw off merch counterfeiters. So another merchandise-based decision. So he wanted pe- he wanted to potentially fool people who are trying to make fake merchandise for the film into printing the wrong title. So you could tell. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Either way, the movie is Return of the Jedi. Uh, George Lucas appears with the characters on the cover of Time magazine, and which referred to the movie as Star Wars Three. Uh, you know, there's a huge fanfare. This movie hits a little over a thousand screens in 800 movie theaters. And just for comparison, the opening weekend for Star Wars, 43 theaters. Yikes. Crazy, right? This movie is just, you know, huge, huge, huge. It grosses $500 million worldwide. It is, you know, it is the big success, and yet at the same time, the 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 biggest fans probably root, you know, root harder for the first two movies and look at Return of the Jedi, not so much as a Godfather three, but definitely not uh, with the esteem I'd say as the first two potentially, but maybe with more nostalgia. I have personally way more nostalgia for Return. It's an essential part. It is part of the. It is the end of the trilogy. I don't see it as much as a. Take as as all taken as all three like Return of the Jedi holds its weight. I just I know that when I rewatched it this week, my mind I kind of like my phone came out more than when I was rewatching Empire. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, in between, in between the amazing moments that I that like kind of shake you to your core, the 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 crescendos and the and the high the high speed uh, starship battles and bikes and all this shit happening. There's also like weird quiet moments and Ewoks uh, bopping each other in the nuts. Uh, fun fact, several Ewoks uh, were passing out and they had to feed them salt tablets through <laughs> their little mouths um, to well, keep them on their feet. If you ask the director, Marquand, he would argue that he made the best one. Unfortunately, you couldn't ask him today. He passed away in 1987 from heart issues. But he says this about his film. I was able to entertain the little kids with the Ewoks and all the stuff that made them feel safe, but I was able at the same time to give young adults the kind of things they're looking for, which is a lot of excitement, a lot of showmanship, but they are also looking for true relationships and genuine emotions. I think that's what has always been in the Star Wars saga, but I was really able to bring that out and make it work. I think that's what Return of the Jedi had that the others didn't have. I'm not criticizing the others. They simply weren't ready for it. That's something you see different in Return of the Jedi than in the other three movies. It's something that I brought. It's rather theatrical. It's a lot like opera. I love big theatrical settings with entrances and exits and big moments. So there you go. I think there's an argument to be made. I get it. But that's also what makes it feel a little uneven, you know, that it jumps between cutesy Ewoks to like this really intense space opera with family and, you know, and big, big over the top moments, um, mm-hmm. like you get with the battle between the Emperor and well, it's because Luke I mean, it's you know what it is is it's because Empire was almost 
Han and Leia's story with Luke just kind of like flailing around, just being like, yeah. I, it's, I'm doing push-ups with a Muppet. This sucks. <laughs> Whereas uh, Return of the Jedi is absolutely Luke's story. You see yeah. him mature. You see him like embrace his role as a Jedi. You see him uh, in his weird, creepy daddy moments being like, I know there's good in you, father, which as a kid seemed like confident and proud. And as an adult, I'm just like, it's a weird way to talk to your murder dad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there you go. I think that does it for us. Uh, that is Return of the Jedi, and this. Oh, is- another thing in the mm-hmm. initial, um, in the initial uh, versions of the story, George Lucas was very like explicit about how Vader was kind of losing ground in the Empire. That like the Emperor was ex- was absolutely like trying to get a hold of uh, Luke Skywalker to replace Darth Vader as his apprentice. Um, saying as much as saying, like, you failed me, you're broken, like, fuck you. And uh, there was kind of this more Game of Thronesian positioning mm. with Darth Vader being like, yo, I'm still evil, but join me not to be the Emperor's sidekick. Like, join me so we can kill the Emperor. And then, like, uh, there were other characters who were kind of... Uh, like Moff Jurgerod or whatever was an important part of the story where he was like trying to undercut Vader's attempts to win Luke. So like there was a lot of intrigue. There was a lot of like, there was a much more mature movie that we could have seen. Yes. Which was like Game of Thrones in space Vietnam. Right. And that like just never materialized. And I think at the end of the day though, would that, would that make this movie the nostalgia piece that it is today? Probably not. Right. And that's kind of the difference, right? You could, you could, we could appreciate it more as adults now, but I think it lives in our hearts in a more pure and beautiful way because it was the kids' movie that it ended up being. Celebrate the nub, a chup chup, yeah, ba do ba dab. Y'all, this has been Wizard and the Bruiser. Thanks so much for joining us and listening to this show. Hey, if you're new, I know, I think we've had an uptick in in listeners. Um, maybe recently. if like uh, a massively more popular podcast run by our <laughs> friends, maybe gave us a shout out. Uh, yeah, and got a lot of you people listening, and I, I can tell at least we've been like number three in games and hobbies uh, for the past like two weeks or something like that, which is unbelievable to us. <laughs> Tons so, of amazing messages from people saying, like, I just discovered you guys. I'm devouring the archives. Yeah, it's which, we're, we're so grateful. We're just so It's really nice grateful. to know that stuff that we recorded, like, a year ago, a year yeah. and a half ago still, like, well, matters. Speaking <laughs> of this episode, I mean, we did Star Wars A New Hope and then Empire Strikes Back, and now we finally finished that. So now you can go back and listen to all three in a row if you haven't <laughs> done this already, you know, or if you haven't listened to the first two already, right? Let it, and, no, we got to release the special editions. Yeah, yeah, well, with, like, bullshit uh, different voices cut. <laughs> In. It's like goofy cartoon voices. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to support us further, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do uh, bonus content every single week. And you jo- mean you like just an entirely n- separate podcast where mm-hmm. we talk about like say stuff that's happening in the news or mm-hmm. talk about like uh, individual topics like maybe the get death of GameStop. Yeah, or questions from the audience, all different sorts of things. So like say you've gone through the archives and you're like, ah, shit, now I need a new podcast to listen to. Just go to Patreon. There's a whole there new go. podcast. Done. You can listen to. It's over. Or, or, uh, and also, please consider uh, writing a review uh, on iTunes. That always helps. But either way, you, if you want even more of our stupid ass faces and voices, check out twitch.tv forward slash holdnaders ho. For me, I stream all throughout the week. Also, Jake. I uh, do a little thing uh, called Cartoon Hell, which is an animated uh, show where 
I play a demon and I force my friends to uh, make new cartoon series uh, under threat of eternal damnation. You can find that on dropout.tv. Uh, there's a million great shows on there. Uh, go, sign up for the free trial. And I swear to God, if you like this show, you'll like what we're doing over there. Dropout.tv. And follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And hey, always remember, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.